Okay, so thank you guys for coming tonight. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Revelation chapter 14. So this is, we've been talking about this, this idea of the victory of Christ for three weeks now. This is the third week of it. And so this week, we see this, this point come in where we're at the last chapter in this. And this is the part that comes right after, you know, last week we talked about the beasts. We talked about all the, all the things that they were going to do to the earth, all the ways that they were going to, they were going to hook people in. There were people were going to be marked with this mark of Satan. Like all this crazy stuff was going to happen. And so we see all of this happen last week. And so then this week, right when it seems all hope is lost, suddenly this is where we see Jesus come back into the narrative. Remember, he was there in the first week. When we talked about the, the birth of Jesus and all this that happened around the birth of Christ and Satan being thrown out of heaven, we see all this stuff going on then. And then last week we talked about the two beasts. This week, now we get into the, the return of Christ finally. And so in many ways, this is a continuation in chapter seven. So if you weren't here for that, in chapter seven, we saw the saints being sealed by God for the day of resurrection. Essentially, that was just an interlude where like all this destruction happens and there's this, this random interlude where all of a sudden, John is explaining this vision of the saints being sealed for the day of salvation. Like they're, they have the seals placed on their foreheads and it says that they're sealed from all the destruction that's happening in the world. And they're also being sealed to be protected from the schemes of Satan. And so all this happens in chapter seven. And then here, what we're seeing is, is a result of that. Like we've seen all the stuff that they're sealed from, like all the stuff they're being protected from. You know, we saw in the last chapter, we saw the two beasts and how, these people are being marked by Satan and all this is going on. You know, we see the mark of the beasts and all this is happening. And we see the believers are protected from that. Like they can't, they can't have the mark of the beast on them. They can't have the mark of Satan on them. And they can't, they're not being led astray by Satan. But then we also see all this destruction that's happened so far. Like we've seen like three different accounts now of the world ending. And in all of it, believers are protected from that. So we've already seen what it is that they're, they're saved from. But then this week it comes in to show what they are saved for, like what happens afterwards. What is it that the seal leads to? Um, so basically to kind of recap a little bit of what happened in chapter 13. In chapter 13, we see that there are two beasts introduced to the story. So Satan is unable to conquer the child. He's unable to kill the child. He's unable to kill the, the, the mother. And so he sends, he raises up this beast, this first one, that's this big political leader who has a ton of power and authorities starting to oppress Christians, is beating them down, is persecuting them. And we see that this political leader, it doesn't just represent Nero, it doesn't just represent Domitian, it doesn't just represent Rome, it represents all political leaders who would come and stand opposed to the gospel. And so we see that we as Christians are destined over and over and over again, be under these leaders who are opposed to the gospel, who are opposed to Christ. But then it gets even worse because then the second beast comes up and it's this religious leader. It's someone who is claiming to be a follower of Christ, is claiming to be sent from Christ, but it's a false prophet and a false teacher. And they're pointing people to the first beast and to Satan. And we see this over and over again. There's plenty of examples we could throw out of people like this in the world right now. But then so all of this is going on and it seems like all hope is lost because all of these people are turning away from Christ and turning to Satan and following him. And it seems like the whole world is just going to be destined to continue being under these oppressive leaders and under these rulers who turn people away from Christ. But then we get to the very beginning of chapter 14. And it says, the first few verses here says, Then I looked. And behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, 
and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is those who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. It is those who follow the lamb wherever he goes. They've been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And their mouths, and in their mouths no lie was found for they are blameless. So right here from the beginning, from verse one, we see this incredible image of hope that to this day we have to cling to in our darkest days and our, our hardest moments. We have this image of hope of the Savior standing on the mountain, looking out over all, standing there triumphantly with his people around him. And this verse is the fulfillment of Psalm chapter two, verse six, where it says, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That was God proclaiming to those who were against him. He says, this is what's going to happen to you in the day of judgment. I'm going to set my king on this hill and your time is going to be over. And I will proclaim all my judgment and wrath on you. So the psalm is talking about this exact moment, the moment when the battered and beaten down righteous look up to see their Savior who has come for them, to take them home. And when the confidence of the wicked, when they look up and realize that their time has come and their reign is ending. And so one of the first things I want to point out here is that this, this 144,000 with him, we've talked about this before, but for those of you who weren't here, this doesn't this isn't an actual number. Like there's not only 144,000 people who are going to be saved. This just represents all the saints who would ever be saved by God. So everyone who is of God, everyone who is of Christ, who is in Christ, is represented here in this 144,000 who stand before God, who are sealed on their foreheads. And so in all of this, we see this representation of the people of God before him and multiple times now we've seen them standing before him in the throne room and they've been sealed and all this has happened and so now we stand we see them standing triumphantly with christ so this means that when he comes we've already been saved and we've already been redeemed by him and he is there waiting for us and so in the past in this book whenever we've heard a loud voice from heaven cry out okay so we've seen this before and typically when we see that in this book it's God who's crying out. And it's, you know, described as the voice of many waters, is described as a voice like thunder. We see it described several different ways. But here, suddenly this isn't God crying out anymore. This isn't God calling out. Suddenly we see that this is a sound coming from the 144,000, coming from heaven, coming from those who've been redeemed. And they're singing this new song that only they know. And that is their song of salvation. See, they sing this new song and they sound, the voice that's used to describe them is the same voice that's used to describe God because they're bringing glory to God through their singing, through their worshiping of him and through their knowledge of their salvation, through them knowing what he's done for them. Now they're glorifying him. And so it, here, it's first it talks about how they're sexually pure. And it's a weird thing to say. This is not First of all, this is not saying that the only people who are going to be saved are men who have never had sex with anyone. What this is saying is that all those who are saved, it's using sexual purity to refer to their spiritual purity. This is, a sim this is symbolism again. He's saying, hey, these people are pure. They are blameless. They've done nothing wrong. Even if they have sinned, even if they have 
broken this covenant with God, even if they have, for example, like even if they have engaged in, in sexual immorality, like even if they've done these things, they are redeemed in Christ and there's no fault or blame to be found in them. And he says that they follow the lamb anywhere that he goes. So they are dedicated. They are obedient to God and everything that he asks of them. And all of this, we see their purity and we see that it's not them who have done anything to earn this. It is God who has sealed them and who has done this on their behalf. But then notice this, that those who are not sealed by God here, who are not among the elect, they cannot understand the song because they have given their minds over to Satan. We talked about this in the last chapter, how they're sealed on their foreheads because their minds are now corrupt. Their minds now belong to Satan. They've given over their minds to him. And so here we see they can't understand the things of the cross. It's like in 1 Corinthians 1.18 where it says that the, you know, the, the wisdom of the cross, it is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's the same thing here. Just like in Romans 1 where it talks about how claiming to be wise, they became fools. And how God gave them over to their sexual immorality, gave them over to their debased minds. Like We're seeing the effects of this here finally, the culmination of all of this. These people who cannot understand the things of God. And it's... And it's because they haven't tried to. They've given themselves over completely to their sinfulness and to their wickedness and to, their, and to Satan. And so when God, when they hear them singing this new song, when, they, when God comes to them and says, repent and follow me and I will give you grace and mercy, when all of this is happening, they can't understand it. They can't learn it. It's already too late for them because they have given themselves over to everything that God abhors. And so in all of this, what we see here in this beginning part is this triumphant picture of though say, of though God's people have been oppressed and been beaten down and been destroyed and all this has been happening to them. And though the beasts have been given authority over his people and over all people, and though it seems like every single day more and more people are turning away from him, we still look to the hills and see Jesus there coming to redeem us. See, The first thing that we can learn here is that all of our suffering will one day end in Christ. All of our suffering will one day end in Christ. That is the great hope that we have. That one day, everything that we experience now is going to be done away with. And we're going to be made completely new, free from the effects of sin and pain and shame and all of the things that came along with the fall. It's all going to be gone. We'll be able to experience God in the flesh, right in front of us. So then we get into the final warning that we see here. So these these three angels appear to announce God's judgment. And so picking up in in verse six, it says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into his into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night 
these worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its nature. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. So right here, again, we see these three angels flying in to pronounce God's judgment on these people. First angel flies over and once again calls everyone to repentance. If you've been here before, you, you've heard this before. This sounds familiar to you because once, because again and again and over and over, we see God calling these people to repentance. He's given them every last opportunity to turn away from their sins. And this is a reminder that God has given the wicked every single possible chance to repent of their sins and turn to him. Even though he knows that they won't do it, even though he knows that they can't understand anymore, they've given themselves over, he knows that they're not going to turn. He still gives them the opportunity to. He proves his mercy to us yet again. The second angel proclaims the fall of Babylon. Now Babylon has not yet been introduced in this narrative, but this references Daniel chapter seven once again, and basically the entire book of Daniel, where Daniel's in captivity in Babylon when he's writing this letter, when he's when he's prophesying, when he's seeing these things. And so Babylon here really, in a very small sense, it represents captivity for God's people. Like, you know, we saw that the beasts in Daniel represented different kingdoms in the area that were going to attack Israel. And we saw that Babylon eventually takes them into captivity again. And so Babylon here obviously represents their captivity. So it also represents Rome that oppressed the people that was that were persecuting them now, that was arresting Christians that were killing them. All this stuff, this represents Rome, but it's also bigger than this because we see that Babylon doesn't fall until the very end. And so Babylon represents everything that would come after this. And not just the governments that would oppress Christians, but the world and its ways where it tries to seduce and draw away Christians. This, this part where it talks about Babylon's seduction here, this represents society's allure of material prosperity and pleasure. It represents everything that we and ourselves naturally want and how society keeps trying to draw us into that. It's like, hey, you can have this pleasure, this object, these riches. You can have all of this if you just stay here and don't follow Christ. And so in all of this, we see that all of this, that Babylon is about to fall and that the angel is coming over and he's like, guys, this kingdom, this earthly, these earthly pleasures, this earthly kingdom that you've put your faith and trust in, it is about to fall and it will be no more. It cannot save you anymore. It never could save you. Then the third angel comes to warn the people exactly what they will face if they continue down this path. Like, this angel comes to them and is like, hey, this is, a, like, this is a play-by-play on every horrible thing that is going to happen to you if you do not repent now. Lays it out for them in detail. This is what's going to happen to you. And still, they refuse to repent. And still, they don't turn to the gospel. God is, very, God is making it very clear to unbelievers here what the punishment for their sins will be. You know, it's, he's, he's telling them, he's like, guys, if you follow down this path, this is what's going to happen to you. This is what's going to happen to you. If you keep doing this, this is what's going to happen to you. If you keep doing this, that's what's going to, this is what's going to happen to you. It's just like we saw with Israel in the Old Testament, where God kept saying, if you do this, this is what's going to happen to you. And then they would do it, and a nation would conquer them or attack them or oppress them. They'd be like, God, why did this happen? He'd be like, I told you this would happen. Like, you knew from the beginning this would happen, and yet you still chose to do it. And here again, he comes to these sinners and says, this is what is going to happen to you if you don't repent and turn away now. 
You have no excuse anymore. God has to punish sin. Sins against an eternal God are deserving of eternal punishment. And God may have chosen to save some of us, but none of us deserve it. That's what we learn here. This warning here reminds us what could have happened to our own lives outside of Christ. And this section ends with this incredible benediction and encouragement to believers. To believers who were persecuted and who were dying and had all this going on in their lives. And he's like, guys, stay encouraged because only hope is coming for you. Even if you die now, then all your, all your good deeds, they follow you. All the work that you did for Christ, the righteousness, it follows you. If you die now, then all your troubles are over and you are with Christ. So what do we learn here? From this section, we learn that God is a merciful God. God is a merciful God. It cannot be said that he did not give them every opportunity to repent. But then we also see that sinners are deserving of God's wrath. That includes us. Hey, all sinners everywhere are all deserving of God's wrath. And yet we don't all face it. And that is the biggest blessing we could have gotten. And finally, we get to this last section here, the harvest. This is the actual final consummation of all of these things. This is Christ coming back to do what he started back when he led his earthly ministry here on earth. This is everything coming to a head. And this is Christ coming back for his people. We finally get to the harvest. Starting in verse 14, it says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the white cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put, calling with a loud voice to the one who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called out with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden against the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for, six, for 1,600 stadia. So, in other words, we see this moment here where this, finally, this, this harvest finally happens. We finally see God doing the thing that he promised to do from the beginning. And it was to destroy the wicked and to rescue his people. In the beginning here, we see... All of history coming to this one point here where Christ comes on the cloud, just like it was prophesied in Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, in verses 13 and 14, where it says, I saw in the night visions of me cold with the clouds of heaven. There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is the fulfillment of that all the way back in Daniel, where we see the Son of Man coming back to rightfully take his place and to bring his people home. This is also the fulfillment of everything that Christ did here on earth. 
He came to us as a sower who sowed seeds and laid the foundation and died on the cross to create and rose again from the grave to create this salvation, to make this available. And then after everyone is sealed, he comes back in the end to, to reap the harvest, to take everything that he sowed and to bring it back with him. This is the culmination of everything that he has done in his ministry, all leading up to this point. He first came as a sower, planted the harvest, and he comes back as the reaper to take the harvest with him. And he is there to save his people from a wicked and hateful world, a world full of sin and strife and pain and suffering and shame and persecution and all of these things. He comes back for us in the end. Then we see this other angel coming. And this other angel is reaping this other harvest, but this time it's not wheat, it's grapes. Now, both harvests, both harvests easily could have been seen as different interpretations of the same thing happening. However, based on the language here, I think it's more likely that we see, first see Jesus coming and taking his people, and then we see everybody else taken with this other angel. And it says that they, it literally says here, they're thrown into this wine press of the wrath of God. And so, just like how earlier it said that the wrath of God would be the wine of the wrath of God would be poured out on them. Now, now they're being put into this wine press and the wrath of God is being brought down on them fully. It's all this metaphor for what God is going to do to these sinners. See, in the first one, we see Jesus coming to take his people. But in the second one, we see God sending away those who never loved him, who never knew him. And I think in all of this, what we see is the final condemnation of all of those who are outside of Christ. Now, let me be clear, this does not mean that Jesus is going to come back quietly and sneakily and kind of take people away and then everybody's going to wake up and be like, where did everybody go? They were just here. What this does mean is that this is likely, it says here, it's a very public event where everybody is seeing what happens. Everybody knows what's going on. And this is all happening at the same time. Like the first Jesus comes back, takes his people. And then right after that, the second angel comes back and just clears everybody else out so that the earth can be destroyed and a new earth can be made. So what do we see in this passage? We see first that Christ will return for us. Christ will return for us. This is the greatest hope that we have, that one day we will be resurrected, and that one day we will stand before Christ, that he will return for us. Then the second is that the lost will face an eternal punishment. The lost will face an eternal punishment. And I think for us, when we read passages like this and see that there is such great hope to be found in Christ, but when we also read these passages and see what happens to those who are not of Christ, it should be our greatest motivation to go and share the gospel. It should be our greatest motivation to make sure that everybody knows that we fight for those that we know who are lost, to fight for those that we love, that we want to see not experience this pain and suffering it's talked about here, but instead experience the fullness of joy that is only found in Christ. And so in all of this, as we kind of as we kind of close out this chapter here, I want you to think about how both of these things can be true, that we serve a God who is merciful and that that should give us the greatest hope imaginable. But also that sinners are deserving of eternal punishment and that we should be doing every single thing that we can to ensure that everybody we know hears the gospel. Well, let's pray. <clears throat> God, I thank you so much for your word. God, I thank you for this truth that is in here.
I thank you that we can place our hope in something that is real, that is concrete, that is that has never, ever failed us before and that never will. But I thank you that you reign and rule above all things, that you are so good and merciful to us. But God, I also thank you that you are the righteous judge. I thank you that the sin is punished and that one day things will be made new and made right the way they are supposed to be. God, I thank you that we can live in this hope today. And God, I pray that you would motivate us, compel us to share the gospel, to go and to love people well, and to bring your truth everywhere that we go to confront false teaching and to bring the gospel to every single person that we can possibly reach. God, help us to glorify you in everything that we do. I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.